it seemed like every story I reported, I always felt like there was more to it. And I just couldn't stop. I had to keep digging. Curiosity is one of the great skills in a journalist's toolbox. The need to know, to dig deeper to find answers can lead you to some amazing places. I'm Michael O'Connell. This is It's All Journalism. Joanne Farian is an award-winning journalist and producer specializing in investigative multimedia projects. She's reported in Canada and the U.S. for both regional and national news programs. In July, she launched Room 20, an L.A. Times Studios-produced podcast that chronicles Joanne's efforts to ascertain the identity of an unnamed man with severe brain damage who spent the last 15 years in a San Diego nursing home on life support. Welcome to the podcast, Joanne. Thanks for having me. So first of all, you have a pretty fascinating career in journalism. Tell me about your journalist journey. How did you get interested in journalism and and where have you made stops along that journey? I grew up in Canada and uh, thought I wanted to be a lawyer, despite the fact that I think it was in grade six, I started a, a classroom newspaper. I think I was always interested in news. My family watched television news. They always had the radio on to some sort of talk program and they read the newspaper. So it was always in my life, thought I wanted to be a lawyer. And then I guess two years into my undergrad degree, I was majoring in English or three years in maybe I decided I was going to go to journalism school instead, just because I found out about a program offered at a college in my city that my sister told me about. And I thought, really, it's a job and you can learn how to do this. So I graduated uh, with a degree in English. And instead of going to law school, I went to Red River College to a two-year communications program where I majored in journalism. And best decision I ever made. I don't think I've ever doubted my choice about being a reporter. I think the great thing too, about the program I came out of and maybe being trained in Canada, we didn't really separate, you know, you're a broadcaster or you're a newspaper reporter or you're on the radio. Like it was all your reporter and you go report and you might report for TV or radio. So I, I kind of did that throughout the beginning of my career from newspapers to, to television. Ultimately, I ended up at the CBC, CBC Radio, then went to CBC, a documentary unit, and so on and so on and so on. I don't think I ever got the official title investigative reporter until about 10 years ago, even though it seemed like every story I reported, I always felt like there was more to it. And I just couldn't stop. I had to keep digging. I think my unusual career is really just me following my ex-husband from city to city and country to country. I ended up moving to California again because of my ex-husband. He's a scientist. And and so I was just lucky enough to always land a job no matter where we moved. And we're here to talk about Room 20, which is this podcast that you did for the LA Times Studios. You know, you say investigative journalist. It's weird because it starts out in one way and you don't necessarily think it's going to be you know, a lot of investigation going on, but it it is. It's a journey of you sort of uncovering this story. And that's part of the, you know, the narrative of it. And I think it's kind of a fascinating process to observe. So how would you describe Room 20 as a podcast? Yeah. So, you know, it's funny because, and I know we're going to talk later about how I pitched it. Going in, I had my recorder with me, right? So I started off recording and this was going to be just finding out the identity of a man. So I find out there's this guy in a nursing home who's been there 15 years, kept alive on life support. I'm told he's in a vegetative state and he goes by the name 66 Garage. They think it's because he was driving a van, trying to cross 
the border, the Mexico-U.S. border in the desert, in the Southern California desert, and he crashed. And this man was taken to a place called 66 Garage. So I'm not giving anything away. That's the setup of the story. That's what I know about this guy. And I decide without thinking it through one Monday morning that I'm going to quit my job and I'm going to go find out who this guy is. And just to back up, I had already done some reporting on him and that reporting had already put into motion sort of the efforts that ultimately would, and I'm not giving him anything away. I tell you right in the beginning, I do find out who he is. So that all those efforts were already kind of put into motion. So what happens is it's supposed to be one thing, as you say, I'm going to find out who he is. That kind of happens early on and it turns into these other things. If I were to kind of group the podcast into three categories, it's really about, it's about immigration and how a man basically loses his humanity once he crosses the border. Systemically, I kind of document all along the way how this happens. It's about the question of consciousness and how good medicine is or isn't at determining consciousness. And then I think it's about sort of these end of life decisions that we all face that when are we prolonging life or are we really prolonging death and what all of that means and um, choices that they're not necessarily reserved for old people. They're either choices we make on behalf of other people in our lives, but in a lot of cases, people who end up on life support, particularly in California, and there are thousands of them, uh, they're not old. They're people who've been in accidents. You know, they're in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, and someone along the way has made a decision to keep them alive in this way, and they end up living for sometimes decades. I think you say in one episode that, I don't know if it's the state of California or for it's the U.S. government, $4 million to have kept this patient alive for 15 years. Again, 66 Garage is the name that he's been called all that time. I found out about him because I had done an investigative series for iNewsource and KPBS, the affiliates I was working with in San Diego, on people kept alive in this way. It's a state of California that pays. The program's called Medi-Cal. It's basically Medicaid. If you're poor or if you're disabled, you qualify. Anybody living in this state, if they're not poor, they will be poor after a month. It's $1,000 a day to keep you alive, roughly. If Medicaid pays, it's sort of a reduced rate at about $800 a month. And so it costs, in the year that I did that reporting in 2014, there were about 3,700 people kept alive in this way, and the state was paying $636 million to keep them alive. So, I mean, that's the bigger story about you know keeping people alive, that aspect of the story that you're, you're telling. What I find fascinating about this is, you know, if you're a reporter, if you're a journalist, sometimes you run across a story and you cover it like you did this sort of bigger story. But then there's some aspect of it that sort of, you know, maybe gnaws at you or or just sort of attracts you to it that, you know, I want to tell that story. What was it about this story that you wanted to, I mean, because on the face of it, it doesn't necessarily seem like you're going to be able to make a podcast out of it. You know, what was it about this story that attracted you? Yeah. You know what? Lots of people did think I couldn't make a podcast out of it. So what happened? And and again, it's not really a a spoiler because you learn this in the first episode. I didn't know it at the time, but I mean, I had this personal connection to the story and it goes back to my own mother's death. And I don't know if I just completely lack (laughs) self-awareness. I don't know, you know, just, I didn't, I don't know that I made the connection of why I was there to my mother's death until quite literally, 
I had so many people, because this this went on for two years, right? Me being at this nursing home, I had people say like, why are you there? Why are you doing this? And I, and I didn't even understand the question. What do you mean, why am I here? And then when I actually started writing this, not for the podcast, but then I tried to pitch it as a book. And when I started writing this as a book proposal, and I told my sisters what I was writing about, and we started talking about my mother's death, it wasn't actually until then that me realizing why it truly was there, at least in part, which related back to her death, that I realized it. And I didn't know that this was going to be a podcast. Like, and when I went into it, I have a, like, I've spent years reporting in radio and television and doing long form. I've done like lots of documentaries. And um, I didn't think that somehow I had a multi-episode narrative podcast on my hands. I don't even know if I knew what that was at the time. I'd listened to Serial like everyone else. I didn't know how to do that. I didn't know what that was. And it got to the point where the first few weeks, I was doing what a reporter does, like where I'm recording and then I'm logging my tape and I'm labeling it and I'm creating folders and, you know, I'm being a journalist and I'm miking things properly to I collected so much tape that I lost track of. It became a giant mess. I was recording things on the fly, recording things on my phone because I became part of this story. I was kind of in it. And, you know, so I'd have like hundreds of hours of tape of me kind of finding stuff out live. And so fast forward, when I was working with a production company on putting this together as a podcast, I mean, honestly, they hated my tape because it wasn't like, you know, podcast tape where, hey, there's this really interesting story we've read about. Let's go back and make it a podcast. We'll interview all the main characters. We'll tell them to tell us what happened, you know, and then we'll add, add sound design. I had, as it's happening, tape. I would have, let's say, an hour in room 20 of nothing but like a hiss from the oxygen machine. But then right in the middle for three minutes, you'd have this amazing interaction, right, of the head of the nursing home saying something. So you'd have to go looking for it. Like, so it was this kind of weird thing. Like, did I know it was going to be a podcast? No. I didn't even know how to do a podcast, really. Like, you know, in terms of how is it different than a radio documentary? And I don't think it's that much different, to be honest with you. But how do you tell a story based on something that you've gathered for two years and something that you're in? And I I had to be a character in it because I ended up changing or causing so much of the action in the story, too. How were you able to sort of reconcile this then, you know, as you, you got to the point where, OK, I'm going to try to put together a pitch for something? I mean, you say you've made yourself part of the, the narrative. You, you sort of made yourself part of the story. And it's so weird because it, this reminds me, and this is where I go off on one of my tangents. Uh, <laughs> this reminds me of a, a story that I had that I just recently wrote that I had been sort of writing in the background for seven years and it, it never seemed to gel. And then one day it sort of came together and I was like, oh, okay, this is the reason why I was interested in this. This is why I wanted to tell this story. And, you know, sometimes you just go into these things and it's like, you know, there's some sort of sixth sense in you that there is a narrative in here that isn't apparent. There's something that I'm connecting with. You know, maybe that's what it is. But, you know, how do you reconcile that when you get to that point to pitch it? Yeah, no, that's that's a really good question. And And just going backwards for a moment, when I had been reporting on that nursing home, on that unit for nearly a year and the stories were done, I kept finding a reason to go back. And it's one of the worst places on earth. 
it's so sad. It smells bad. It's horrible. It's people are suffering. It's terrible. And yet I want to keep going back. And I didn't know why. So, so just going back to that. So then how do I kind of finally reconcile this and realize it's got to be part of the narrative? Well, because I had the most amazing editor and her name is Susan White. This goes back to the pitch. So then I think it might be a book. It might be a magazine story. I don't know what it's going to be. It'd been rejected as a podcast many times. I had one person tell me, your main character doesn't speak. This can't be a podcast. And to sort of make it even worse, like, so when I quit my job, I was married and my husband made enough money that me quitting, I was okay. We were, could still pay our mortgage. I got a divorce in the middle and um, didn't get, was, so I suddenly was unemployed. I didn't have an income. I was living off my savings. I didn't have a job because I quit. So then I'm desperate to sell this. What else am I going to do? Nobody wants to buy it. And Susan White is this amazing she's a newspaper editor. She's three-time Pulitzer Prize winning editor. She lives in San Diego. She used to work at ProPublica. I knew about her. I had met her a couple times, I'd reached out to her just like saying, can we have coffee? Because all I hear are these amazing things about you. And then just one day when this story was being rejected over and over again, and I didn't know what I was going to do, I called her and she knew about the story. And I said, will you be my editor? I don't have any money. I um, don't have a contract, nothing. But will you be my editor? And she said, yes. And so I think once she came on board and we became this team and she believed in the story as much as I did. She's the one who recognized that she said, you have to tell people, they're going to say this woman is crazy, who quits their job, who does this. Like, you have to tell them why you're there. You're part of this story. Like, it's inescapable. And I think I just trusted her to help me know when I should be in the story and when I should not be in the story. So really, it's her. Yeah, there's this weird kind of zone in podcasting, in journalistic podcasting, where it's sort of going back on that attitude of, you know, well, we're journalists, we have to separate ourselves from the story, we can't be part of the story. You know, maybe we're narrating it, but ultimately, it's the subjects or interviewing the, the, the subjects of, of the story. Those are the things that are most important. But occasionally, you'll get a podcast like this one, where you're essential to this podcast, not just because you're telling the story, but because, you know, the way you were describing it, I'm sitting here thinking, thank God this podcast came along because you would still be there, it seems. <laughs> that, <laughs> that, that, but you had, but you had a sense enough that there's something here. It means something to me. It's important that I tell it. And then, you know, the fact that there was an editor there that had rejected you, people who had rejected you as a podcast because Lots they didn't because they Lots, couldn't understand yeah. because they were looking at it from a journalistic standpoint well you know you can't be the center of the story it has to be but the fact is is the your main character can't speak so you have to be the person to speak for him and you you find other people who are able to talk about him and in some sense speak for him so wow the podcast is about you about you as much as it about this other person and the driving narrative is is your investigation. So it's it's a fascinating sort of little thing here. So you have an editor who believes in you. So the story is, you know, the story is going to be be turned into a podcast. So still, so I have an editor and that's wonderful, but but still nobody wanted it. So that this was in 2017 in the summertime and I had lunch with the editor and the publisher of the San Diego Union Tribune, the newspaper there. His name is Jeff Light. 
And I asked him if he would have lunch. And and the reason he said yes, I mean, I'd been a reporter in San Diego for a long time. I used to host a TV show. And I think that kind of got me in the door. So Jeff said, yeah. And I remember meeting him at the university club, which is a really fancy place for lunch. And I had a herniated, this is, I'm sharing too much information, but it was so horrible. I had a herniated disc and I couldn't, I could barely walk on my left leg. Like all the feeling had gone out of it. And I thought, just make it to the the table in the restaurant without falling and you'll be okay. Cause then you could just sit <laughs> and it just, anyway, it felt so pathetic. And I'm, I'm really, what I'm wanting is for him to give me a job. And instead he's like, what are you working on? And I start telling him about room 20. I didn't know it was called room 20, but just about this nursing home and about 66 garage. And I'd been there already for like, I don't know, a year and a half to you. I don't know what it had been, lost count. So I don't know where you are on the podcast. I don't want to spoil it, but there's a character. The reason it's called room 20, something happens with the roommate that is shocking. And the, the ending is really unexpected. And so I start telling him and I still didn't know the exact ending, but a couple things happened towards the end that by then I knew. And he like he's like, this is the craziest story I ever heard. And he goes, I will hire you to serialize it for my newspaper. And he said, no, better yet, I'm going to take you to the LA Times. They're doing podcasts. And um, I thought he was making the whole thing up and I didn't pay attention to it. And so almost a year, I want to say it's like eight months later, after all of this rejection that my editor and I have had, a little tiny digital newsroom has decided that they will buy it. They're not going to give me any money, but they're going to help me fundraise to produce it. So I'm about to sign this contract when I get an email from the head of the LA Times, not the newsroom, but the actual corporation. And it was sort of the day before it was announced that the paper had been sold. And he said, do you still have that story? Jeff like told me about it. I think it's amazing. And I'm like, yeah. I go, but I'm about to sign a contract. So if you're interested, we better talk fast. So within a week, I was at the LA Times telling them about the story. And I, I have to tell you, like, they believed in the story. They 100%. And it felt like they saw it all in that moment. So Susan and I met with them and they just got it. And they have been nothing. And I mean, I, now I sound like rah, rah, LA Times, but I really am. I mean, they have been amazing in making sure that like in, in enabling us to tell the story we wanted to tell. The story you tell in the podcast is amazing. The story of getting it bought and published is almost just as amazing. I think in the world of podcasting, this is probably a little atypical. I don't think that this is necessarily the way things go. I mean, people pitch ideas. People have sort of, you know, oh, I've got a great way to tell an audio story and I've got a subject that I think we have an audience for. How unusual do you think this whole process has been? You know, I feel like, often, and probably lots of reporters feel this way, you're always trying to convince somebody that you have a good story. Give me more time. Give me more time. I've got this great story. And, you know, it's always a fight. And um, especially because I moved around so much and switched newsrooms, it's like every time I had to prove like, no, no, really, I can get this story. Trust me. So I was used to that. But the stakes were so much higher in this case. First of all, I had invested so much time in this. I didn't have a job. I didn't, you know, I didn't know what I was going to do. But it was more than that. So how unusual was it? Yeah. I mean, it wasn't unusual having to convince somebody it was a story. But I suppose what was unusual for me is somebody like the LA Times, you know, they had just come off the great success of Dirty John, which again, I listened to Dirty John 
that's probably when even more than serial, I have to say I fell in love with the way to tell stories on, on podcasting. I thought that Christopher Gofford just, he inspired me in terms of his storytelling and his writing. So I think the fact that the LA Times believed in this and they were willing to invest in it and take a risk, that felt really unusual. I don't think that happens. I don't think it does at all. And, you know, just as an aside to that, I was looking into perhaps going back to Canada. There was a really good job at the CBC that I was really interested in, Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. And I had talked to them, someone there about it, thinking maybe, you know, maybe this is what I should do, go into sort of upper management. And I just remember saying to the person I was speaking to, you know, if I do that and I leave, it means I'm never going to tell this story. And I kind of feel like I owe it to all these people who have invested so much time alongside me and to this man that I just got to stick it out and see what happens. And so I think that was one other moment. So yeah, it was unusual that someone so big like the LA Times, not just bought it and said, we'll do it, but really did it and put everything behind it to find an audience for it. You wrap up the story in six episodes. How do you feel about it now? Well, you know, I think we could have gone longer. Everyone keeps saying they're so short. And I kind of agree. And there was sort of a lot of internal things going on. I think that was all happening. Probably we could have gone with longer episodes. I see, you know, the story. I didn't realize that people would be so interested in their stories. That was part of it. Like, I think that the, the reaction to it, that has been the best part. Not because people are listening to it, like, you know, you're getting downloads, but they are, in their reaction, actually giving this man his humanity. If the whole quest was about finding his humanity, it was actually the telling of and the reaction to that ultimately gives him his humanity. That he is this person, and he's this person who stands in for, for thousands of other people. And just the knowing of that and the knowing of him, I think that's been the remarkable part. So... You're now at the Columbia Journalism School. You're, you're putting together, I understand, a curriculum about investigative podcasting. Tell me about that transition. What, you know, what are you hoping to get out of this class? Well, at the same time that I was actually pitching my podcast, I was applying for this, interviewing for this job. It's funny, my, my sort of career that was all by happenstance that made me into this multi-platform reporter apparently is a skill that is sought after now. So I got lucky. <laughs> I got lucky by moving around so much and moving around newsrooms. And the other thing too, I mean, this is, it, it's a great place to be right now. So I teach right now basic reporting and then I teach a writing class, writing for the ear. So if you want to write for audio, you would take a class like that. And then I think this experience we talked about earlier, like journalism podcast, right? There are a lot of journalism podcasts. The other one that I want to throw out there that I think is just amazing is In the Dark Season 2, American Public Media's fine example of, it's a justice system, it's true crime, but it's really so much more than true crime. So in my experience in the podcast that, you know, Susan and I with the LA Times produced is that we wanted to make sure it was journalistic the whole way through. In public radio in the old days, you couldn't use music. You can't use music, right? It's banned. Basically, if you're you're doing news, you don't you don't use music. You never use sound effects, right? They're banned. You don't use sound effects. Everything is like nat sound. It's really to a minimum. No bells and whistles. We're giving you the news. So podcast blows all of this up. Sound design, music. I oppose sound effects, but I think you can go to scenes and you can gather 
the sound of, right? To that kind of thing. If there were suddenly frogs, you know, at the pond, you can go and you can record some some frogs. Anyway, I'm thinking out loud. So I think that with all of these podcasts that are out there, it's a opportunity to train journalists in this form, especially long form journalists and investigative journalists, because more and more what we're seeing in newsrooms, like these so-called legacy newsrooms that used to be newspapers, they're producing some of the best audio out there. Look at the New York Times, the LA Times with all of their podcasts. Like, I mean, those are just two big ones, right? They're producing some of the best audio storytelling. And so if you're a journalist and you want to go work in a you know, digital newsroom that does serious reporting, long-form reporting, investigative reporting, I think it behooves you to learn how to tell your stories on this platform, because I think it's a great way to do it. When you write an investigative story and you're writing it in print, first of all, it doesn't demand that you find central characters. Podcasting demands that you find the people that are being affected by the stories that you're writing about and investigating. And right away, that makes them more interesting. That makes them better. It's, I think it's a better piece of journalism. If you write a 3,000 word investigative story, I don't think you're going to get the same audience as if you turn all of that great reporting into this narrative told in a compelling way. I think your listenership, you know, suddenly increases. Room 20, I think in the in eight days or the first week or so, I already had a million downloads. That kind of audience, we're not used to that kind of audience as investigative journalists in terms of did a million people read my story? You know, probably not. So I think it's this great opportunity. And now, you know, being at Columbia, I think it's exciting to think that we can offer this to students for the ones who who want to choose this path, right? You come out of here being a really great journalist, but you also have sort of these other things that you have access to in terms of how you're going to tell your stories or how you're going to produce that journalism. Yeah. And I think people's perception about people, when I say people, I mean, I think journalist perception about podcasting is changing. It used to be a few years ago, the idea was, oh, yeah, we'll do a podcast. We'll just do a few interviews and we won't necessarily rely heavily on our, our text and any other content that we have online. And the podcast will just be sort of this extra thing. But I think now because of some of the things that you mentioned, if you're telling a really compelling story that has emotion in it that people can connect to, I mean, this is the medium to do that in. And people respond to that. And I think it's one of the reasons why, you know, things like, you know, true crime podcasts are popular. I think people like the story aspect of it, the mystery aspect of it. But, you know, I, too, am a big fan of In the Dark, and we've had the uh, producers of that on. And, and I'm a fan of that because of the journalism behind it. It's not just a true crime podcast. It, it you know, they went there and they they interviewed people. They, you know, they dug in. And I think as more newsrooms begin to realize, you know, there's something in this with great depth that you can tell these really kind of complex stories. I think we'll see more of this type of stuff. So it's exciting. It's exciting, you know, for you to be in this at Columbia. And I think it's kind of exciting where the medium's going. I mean, something like, you know, the, the New York times podcast, the daily, I think that opens a lot of people's eyes to, Oh, well, you know, well-produced news podcast, you know, that has an audience. What else can we do in the space? And I think it's a lot of it is different than, than what we've had maybe from the NPR in the past because of some of the things that you mentioned about sort of the strictures against music or sound effects. But there are lots of doors opening up here, and I think this is really kind of an exciting time. I agree with you. And I think there is 
a middle place of being able to entertain, and I use that word broadly, but like engage maybe is a better word, with storytelling, using all the things that we thought we shouldn't use in news, but still be true to journalism. And that is the sweet spot. And um, that so that would be my goal in pitching this class, right? In, in saying, this is, this is what I really believe strongly in. Because I think, and we're seeing already, and not to mention some podcasts, but like, we end up with, especially in the true crime genre podcast where, you know, there's other journalism out there and they're kind of talking about that repackaging, right? There's a lot of sort of repackaging. And I feel like, wait a minute, this really should be, I feel like a space for original reporting. There's chat shows, there's interview shows, I think there's all kinds of things like that. But when we talk about journalism shows, I think they should be, you know, to have an emphasis on your original reporting and that's what Into the Dark did too, right? They didn't know what they were going to get when they started out. They didn't know it would be the podcast that it was or the story that it was. They invested a year, all of these people. They you know, went to all of these places. They tracked down all these witnesses. They put all of the story together and they got what they got. But it wasn't a story where it was already done for them and they just went back to talk to people and then assemble it, right? But that takes money. That takes someone to invest the money to take a risk because again, what if, what if they would never would have got half that? You know, what would they have done? So there's a lot of risk taking, I guess, in this and a, a lot of investment. But I'm I'm a firm believer that if you dig deep enough, you'll find the story. There's always a story. As you clearly demonstrated in Room 20, you know, in that first episode, you know, as you're listening to it, you think, you know, how can this be a story? How can this be six episodes? But you take the the listener on that journey. It's pretty fascinating. Joanne, we could talk a long time about podcasts. I really appreciate you coming on this podcast. Is there anything else coming from Room 20 or is there any other project that you're going to be working on? Yeah, so I'm working on two. One is I'm a writer and an editor on one for Turner Classic Movies. It's not investigative journalism, but it's a journalistic sort of look at, I don't know if I'm allowed to name him, a famous director who, you know, had a lot of hit movies in the 70s and sort of, it's not just about his work, but his life. But the other thing I'm really excited about that is still just in the pitching stage and the formation stage, but it grew out of Room 20, this whole thing about consciousness and how do we know it's still a mystery. You can interview a, million, you know, a bunch of neuroscientists and they'll all tell you, it's give you a different definition or tell you they don't can't really define it. But more importantly, can we even determine when somebody is conscious? And there's a statistic out there that says about 40% of the time when we say someone's in a vegetative state, doctors are wrong. They're actually minimally conscious in and out of consciousness. So I want to, without going into the details, that's sort of the big kind of issue, but it's going to be told as a story with some neuroscientists sort of being the main characters. Oh, wow. That's fascinating. I can't wait to, to hear that. Joanne, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the people who make the news. You can find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. While you're visiting our website, why not sign up for the It's All Journalism newsletter? You'll get all the latest info about our podcast, including episode notes and news about live events and upcoming interviews. Go to itsalljournalism.com to subscribe. We also just posted the results of our online survey about journalism resources. Check out what tools some of our readers are using to make good journalism. Everyone who took our survey received a free It's All Journalism mug. If you'd like to score a mug of your own, take one of our surveys. Go to itsalljournalism.com to learn more. 
It takes a lot of people to create an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicole Grisco produced this episode. Amber Healy wrote our web content. Nick Dupre wrote our theme music. Emilio Brust helped with our booking. Nicholas Hunter provided a web assist. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. It's All Journalism is produced in partnership with the Association of Alternative News Media. Thanks for listening.